Welcome to The New Romantics. My name's Sophie Scott. And I am Will Eaves. And we, as The New Romantics, meet every few weeks. I'm a neuroscientist and I give Will a paper to read and Will gives me a poem or a short story or a bit of a book or an essay to read and we find a way of communicating about what we find there. Because we're interested in the intersection between neuroscience and art and literature, but more broadly, science and the arts. So there we are. And this is um, the second episode of our third season. This month, we're going to be talking about cognitive bias and puzzles. And I've brought along some riddles. And Sophie's brought along a very interesting paper called The Mechanism of the Einstellung Set Effect by a lot of people whose names I can't really pronounce. But I'm going to have a go at Peter McLeod. That's the one I can get right. It's awful, isn't it, really? I should have a go, but I, no, I'm not going to try. I was thinking about this because we were talking about puzzles. Um, and for many, many years, I used to work as a tutor for the Open University, and I used to go and do the summer schools up in Stirling for their cognitive psychology course. And it's very practical. You have to get together and sort of design experiments. And the, the experiments I was always in charge of were the ones to do with problem solving. And problem solving is a beautiful kind of old bit of cognitive psychology that really got going in the 60s and 70s. And they were very interested in looking at how people solve problems, often by looking at how people got things wrong. And one of the big areas in problem solving psychology is this Einstellung, the set effect. And that's why I thought it might be interesting, because actually, although it's an incredibly dry experimentation, it's also something you find everywhere where you have humans sort of trying to interpret things and work out what's going on. So it refers to the idea in problem solving that you've learned how to solve a problem and then you carry on trying to solve problems that way. The classic example would be that you've learned the rule for solving some puzzle, like how to move the pieces around to, to particular rules. And then when you're given a similar looking puzzle, that looks like you could apply the same rules. You continue to apply those rules, even though there'll be a simpler way of solving the puzzle. And that's that's a kind of classic, that was the original description of the Einstellung effect. But what's become clearer when we move beyond this kind of classic, let's take a puzzle and see how people do it approach, is that if you broaden it out and sort of zoom out more generally on human cognition, this tendency to either learn a rule and then keep applying the rule, or more often, to judge a situation to be familiar and therefore think you know what the solutions are is found everywhere. So the example in the paper is of chess players, expert chess players, who are shown a chessboard with a configuration which is hinting towards a commonly used solution or move in chess called smothering. I don't play chess. And <laughs> smothering mate, I think. Smothering isn't it? mate, smothering yeah. mate. Sounded alarming. And what happens is the, 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 better, the better the chess player you are, the quicker you are to sort of notice this and to apply that rule, such that when they then change the chessboard to a, a different configuration, which looks like some other mate might be possible, but in fact there is another solution to this which would be quicker and you will not be able to apply the smother mate moves, then actually people take a while to work that out. Whereas if you just show them the second board first off, they solve it more quickly because they haven't been distracted by this what seems like a familiar solution. And they argue that this is an extremely common form of cognitive bias. People do it all the time. You, it doesn't have to be a puzzle or a problem. It could just be a situation where you think, I know what's going on here because I've seen it before and therefore I know what to do. And people can be incredibly resistant 
to changing their cognitions in that situation, even when presented with information that they are factually incorrect in applying this because it feels like the right mm. solution, it feels like the right interpretation. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, I'm, we, I'm sure we can all, without wanting to get too political about it, there are all sorts of situations at the moment where you feel it's pretty obvious that major changes that have come about in the political landscape haven't necessarily worked out terribly well. But people, certain people who, I'm not really coding this very, very well, am I? But <laughs> certain people who kind of voted for a certain thing uh, are very unwilling to abandon their original position. And I think when one talks about that kind of situation, there's quite often the commentators about Brexit can be a bit patronising. And the assumption is that sort of Group A or Group B were stupid to think A or B. But what's interesting about this paper is that it's specifically using very, very highly skilled experts in one area. And that this bias about being unwilling to be distracted from an a priori problem solving kit by new information is totally universal. Mm. It seems to apply to everyone. When was this first noticed? It was first noticed, I think, and I'm going to rustle papers while I check the date. I think it was actually described in the 1940s, very, very early days of the sort of the emergence of cognitive psychology. Cognitive psychology, which is the sort of study of well, really, the sort of the mental processes that underlie thought and yeah. perception, that's something that rose in a way that parallels quite closely computing. Yeah. And I think it probably speaks to people starting to perceive machines or humans as having these more abstract qualities or properties. If you go back to the 1940s papers, they won't read as very cognitive, but that's the start of it. That's the beginning. People don't like to have their opinions disconfirmed by new evidence. Yep. And you could say that one really obvious area of cultural endeavour and belief where that happens is religion. Yes. On two counts. One is that people don't like their orthodoxies disturbed by actually scholarly or theological evidence that texts originating from around about the sort of beginning of the first millennium are actually composed by multiple authors they don't like that because it doesn't fit in with the sort of inerrant uh, narrative of the bible but also they don't like it because they don't want to think really about there being other fundamentalisms attached to a religion so preceding stories christians are not really great at acknowledging that really christianity is a bit of a footnote to judaism you know, however you really want to phrase it that's what it is historically it's a variation on it. And that's very, very difficult for people to compute if your position is that it's in it's the inerrant truth. Mm. And that it in a in a way what I'm describing there actually is it's the it's the reverse of this. So the idea of the New Testament is that it replaces, you know, it's, it supplements the old, but it's also at at the level of truth it's supposed to supplant the Hebraic Bible. But of course the Hebraic Bible comes before it. You know, it, it, mm. it's, it's, the, it's the pretext for it, it's the grounds, but it can't exist without it. And I think that that's a kind of sort of cognitive bias problem right there. That, you know, which, which do you go for? Do you go for the second thing, which solves your metaphysical, metaphysical problems, or do you go for the first? And in that case, it's the second thing, if you're a Christian, that's preferential. Does that ever happen in cognitive bias, that actually it's the second bit of information that's 
something you stick to and you forget about the first. I suppose, in theory, set effects could be shifting. So in the pure example, and I, I should have remembered it was Lutchin's experiments in 1942 first to describe this tendency to learn a rule and then try to carry on applying that rule, even when the rules have changed and there would be easier ways. You, you're you're yeah. doing something more complex than you have to. But that, that would still be learnable. You could then learn something else and you might then continue over applying that. What's difficult is to sort of go back to the completely naive brain that didn't know any of it. That's yeah, the, that's the harder part that it can shift, but it's all you're doing is just shifting where the where the biases are coming from. I love the idea in the experiment, in this one with the chess players, that the you know the second group of players who haven't been exposed to the first longer, less efficient means of solving the problem, getting to mate, can see the new second problem situation very very quickly because they yeah. haven't been exposed. They're not their minds aren't cluttered. Yeah, they don't have any preconceptions about how to, how to play the moves. Yeah. And in a way, you see that all the time when you are teaching people and teaching new students that one of the interesting things about teaching, and I guess this is also true of bringing up kids, is that they don't have your, what's that awful phrase that everyone uses, lived experience, but they don't have your set of references. They have a kind of fresh brain and they get to things quicker intuitively from sort of first principles than people who have sort of much a greater great store of wisdom and you often explain it to yourself as being simply to do with the fact that they're younger more energetic and they've got you know they're just they're just everything works faster Mm. but actually it looks to me to be about cognitive bias exactly absolutely you see the word differently when my son was small he was very, very interested in Doctor Who, and there aren't any TARDISes really around anymore. There's a couple of fake ones. You have to go to Glasgow if you want to see a proper police box. But there are those police call posts in London. And so we'd go and look at the police call posts and pretend it was a TARDIS. Great, fabulous. Okay, they're all in the city of London. Very interesting. But they were doing lots of building work around the back of King's Cross a few years ago. They put up different book covers as part of the hoardings covering up the building work. And one of them was a huge copy of one of those old Ladybird books. Mm. And it was the one I'd seen when I was a child of a policeman. And it's the Ladybird Book of the Police. And my son went belting up to it. And I was going, oh, look, it's the Ladybird Book of the Police. Fabulous. I used to have that. And my son went, look, it's it's a TARDIS. Because he was talking into a police call post. And I had never once noticed that. I hadn't seen it at all. I must have looked at that book cover a thousand times and never seen what the policeman's actually talking into. He's on the phone, but he's on the phone. But my son was looking at the whole world through a filter of police call posts and it was the first thing he saw we would see the same thing completely differently entirely because of our history with these things and also what we found interesting in it The tricorder and the sort of transistors that the guys in Star Trek have. Now, if you show the 60s series to a kid today, they'll just say it's a mobile phone. Yeah. Straight away. Because, of course, that's what it is. Yeah. And interestingly there, it is exactly that. It originally just wasn't called that. Yeah. That's in itself a bit of a semantic puzzle. So... The child today might then say, why do they keep calling it a tricorder? It's a, it's a mobile or it's a yeah. cell phone. But they refer to the same thing. And in philosophy, Wittgenstein famously said that, you know, basically all problems in philosophy are really puzzles. And he had not very much time for people who didn't see it that way. He was very, you know, he, he saw them all as meaning puzzles, really. The guy who 
wrote the first really, I'm sure you know this paper, the really interesting paper about puzzles and meaning and semantics was Frege. And it's the paper on sense and reference. And he has a series of very short sentences. And I think in the first puzzle, there's a, there's a series of puzzles. But in the first one, there are these two sentences. And one is Hesperus is Hesperus. And the next one is Hesperus is Phosphorus. Now, they are all, in fact, the morning star. I think I'm right in saying they're all Venus. Right. But Hesperus and Phosphorus are different names. And if you don't know that and you just think that a proper name is itself, has a singular referent, it can't be anything else, then those two sentences, the second one, will contradict the first and will look nonsensical at the level of referent alone. If you're just looking at reference... Saying Hesperus is Hesperus, that makes sense. But Hesperus is Phosphorus doesn't. In fact, it does because they're both Venus. But you need to have the sense allocation to the second sentence and then to look back at the first to understand that. Mm. And so Freg was interested in how you, you can only solve that apparent contradiction if you have that other bit of knowledge. Yeah. And I think that that's often what happens. That's really another description of the cognitive bias thing, that you, that you sort of need to have contextual information to either get to something quicker or get rid of something that used to serve you well. It, it's, sort of, it's not just about which is faster and which is shorter. Absolutely. It's about context. It's about context. And it's, I think it's also about humans always in the moment wanting to understand if there is something i don't understand the hesperus is hesperus hesperus is phosphorus there's something else going on here i want to know what that is if i haven't got the missing knowledge i'll be left a bit bothered by that it's often studied in terms of like memory if you can make sense of things you are more likely to remember them well yeah and in fact we will distort facts to make them fit into memories because they will then sort of fit our schema, and it's a, it, it's and that's kind of always framed in terms of like your your knowledge is influencing your memory, but it's also influencing your in the moment interpretation, which is what the set effect is describing, like here and now in this second, not what I remember, but what do I understand to be happening right now, is completely shaped by this, and I want to understand it. I I can't just appraise it neutrally and gather together facts and then think it's, about them later. It's right now I'm trying to interpret it. I think it's, it it's really thought. interesting because it, 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 I'm, I'm coming up against this a lot at the moment in a bit of work I'm doing. I'm trying to adapt something I've written for um, the cinema, the screenplay. And I've done two passes at the script and it's quite it's the book about Alan Turing. And murmur. So it's, you know, murmur. Available so, in good bookshops. Prize-winning <laughs> novel, Murmur. So uh, it's... I very much recommend it. <laughs> I, you know, I've given it my best, my best shot, and, and I think it's okay. But what I'm discovering is that it is a book and a story about puzzles, about mathematics, and about this guy who has this terrible thing happen to him. He's arraigned for having sex with another bloke, and then he has to sort of take this terrible drug, and his body changes shape, and he grows breasts, and the whole thing for him is very traumatic. And in my envisioning of Turing's life. The sort of lab-grade oestrogen that he takes has a mildly deranging effect because it has a hallucinatory quality, which I think is a not uh, it, it's not an outrageous you know supposition on my part. But mm. he, the consequence of very very large doses, this hormone very very quickly 
means that he begins to see the world differently. Yeah. Things just change. They sort of go out of register and, you know, things that he's simply thinking about manifest in front of him. Mm. And part of this is, if you like, a kind of dramatic representation of what it means to have an idea about something and then build it, like an idea about a computer that might be intelligent. You've got to have the ideas first before you can yeah. make them real. Adapting this for the cinema, what I've found is that I can't just have something uncanny happening on screen, you know, so that the world begins to look different and, and mirrors begin to sort of, reflections begin to behave independently as if they're bits of AI. I can't just do that because what the producers want is they want everything explained in advance. Yeah. So you can't just have something uncanny anymore. There's got to be what they call a set of sort of world-building rules. I don't know what terrible awful how to write a fantasy book they've read but they they don't really want mystery in the air they yeah. want the rules by which it would be explained set out at the start and the problem with that is of course you end up with no mystery yeah something's going to happen here yeah, it is here it is and increasingly of course that is what is unsatisfying about a lot of fantasy that you see is that it's over explained in the outset it's become a kind of trend i think a lot of Filmmakers need to be happier about letting things hang in the air before you wind back to the beginning and see that actually you've given all the information you need for it to be understood. just take a bit of a diversion here because it was a question I'd always wanted to ask you about your writing. Will has written other books than Murmur, The Oversight, <laughs> nothing to be afraid of, um, all very good books but the, in several of them I'd read two of your books before I think I ever met you but at least two of your books but The the Oversight and Nothing to be Afraid of, I hadn't ever read anything before where there was a, a science fiction literally as part of the narrative but it wasn't framed as this was here's a science fiction book where everything is mysterious and there's a something colorful cover it was as part of the story and it wasn't magical realism it was just this is part of what's going on the, the world's collapsing outside how do in terms of this kind of writing and not explaining or telling people then this is what's going to happen here. How, did, how does that actually work for you? And, then, and, and when you're thinking about the story, how does this kind of feed in? Well, no, it's a very good question. I think the short answer is that, that a lot of readers now want quite a lot of resolution as they're going along, as I was saying. They don't, they don't want to be in the dark for too long. There's far too much exposition, really, and there's far too much sort of explaining away of stuff going on in books, I think, at the moment. One ought to be content. Well, there's no ought to, but I find it more satisfying, mm. actually, to be presented with things that appear to be exactly as they are, strange, out of place, uncanny, imagistic. And then for them to find some kind of narrative place towards the end of the book that isn't at all as you might have expected that place to be for sort of generic reasons. So if you've got someone who can see in the dark in the oversight and another person who is blind but has developed a bit of AI that allows people to track their environment and sort of you know, stimulate the retina and get the sort of rods and cones working so that they know where they are, the puzzle aspect of writing is to see where that will lead you mm. without necessarily knowing in advance. I think most writers will say that you've got to know where you're headed, at least, and then you can sort of find your way to that the denouement yeah. in any number of different ways. 
But my instincts, and perhaps it's just me, are that it's it's quite nice to have an idea of where you're headed, but also very firmly at the outset to have a setup that doesn't bear any obvious relationship to that at all. Yeah. You don't have some intuition of where you how you will get to the end. It seems to belong to an entirely different book. Now that I find interesting. It's probably rash of me and it probably doesn't work, but it's sort of the way I am. lovely friend of mine called Tom Adez who's a composer and he, he said had a lovely description of the way he sees harmony working in music he often talks about a night's move where you sort of go in one direction but you also go around the corner or you know when you put a pencil into water and you see the light bend and so it's no longer straight it's going off at an angle and that's always what I'm aiming for when I write something mm. I want it to be the same thing the ending does belong to the start but it has to have been deformed in some way. Yeah. It has to have been broken and sent round a corner. Or there's nothing really that you couldn't have known at the outset in some way. I mean, it's very satisfying as a reader because, well, you finish a book and want to read it again, now knowing how that's gone to actually work that through again. No, I was fair for but you also... too, but I mean, I think there are plenty of readers out there who are very relieved to have got through it once. Throw it aside in disgust. <laughs> My dad read Nothing to be Afraid of. My dad was not a big reader of books. And, uh, he was, oh, Dorothy Squires, you say, I'll have a look. And he loved it. But it made me wish that they had a different word for them, science fiction or we'd let science fiction be broad. I thought, if more, more stuff could be like this, that science fiction is such a sort of genre, but it seemed like it, yeah. it could just be more writing like this if we didn't well, think I mean, in I think silos. It's the, the, it, does, it does get called different things, doesn't it? One of the kind of all catch-all terms that people use now is speculative fiction. Right. And that seems to encompass science fiction, fantasy and, you know, technological prophetic fiction, which is sometimes slightly different to science fiction, the techno-thriller, yeah. you know. So it seems to encompass all those things, speculative fiction. But the truth is that speculative fiction is fiction and it's been around for a very long time. Yeah. And that actually, if you're thinking about the ways in which objects acquire a life of their own, and I'm quite interested in that, and become uncanny and defamiliarised, then Greek myth is full of them, and as is of its metamorphoses. Yeah. You know, and in fact, the whole structure of myth is about how do you get from the objective world to the phenomenological and the metaphysical and mm. the things that you know appear to indicate another realm. Or that part of the world that is uncontrollable, you know, like disastrous events and sort yeah. of hurricanes and earthquakes. And in that world, material objects have a second function, which is a symbol. And a symbol means that the world is not simply as you see it. It either has a kind of platonic, there's a platonic indication, there's some sort of ideal attached to it, mm -hmm. or it exists in a better form in, this, in an ideal realm. Or it indicates something about hidden forces, powers, death, the gods. When I talk about the uncanny, I, I think you're in a very, whether you like it or not, you're in a very, very long-lived yeah. tradition of how an apparently explainable world conserves mystery. Which just brings us back to the set effect, doesn't it? That's the... It does. Yeah. And, it brings, and, and it brings us, interestingly, to a connection between the set effect 
and the pieces that I bought. So I bought some translations of riddles by a wonderful American poet called Dennis Nooks. He's a Brooklyn poet. He's not very well known in this country, but two volumes are, are published by CB Editions. And I really recommend them. One's called A Night in Brooklyn and one's called Voices Over Water. He's very interested in the sort of defamiliarising aspect of everyday lives, marriages, love. How we reflect on, think about the ordinary things we've done in relationships, how tangible they really are. Pretty standard poetic material, but he takes it a little bit further by thinking of these puzzles of life, these emotional puzzles, and linking them to real puzzles, which mm. is sort of riddles, semantic riddles. He loves those things, and he does very nice translations of them. Yeah. And should I just read a oh, few of do. them? Yeah. So here are some Spanish riddles. And, of course, most riddles are anonymous. Most riddles have a second riddle, which is where do they really come from? Who's written these? How have they sort of come about? Yeah. You've got to solve the riddle, and you've got to solve the riddle of the riddle. And you tend to find that riddles are part of a kind of mise en abeam. beam. You're always going back into a further mystery. It's like a kind of cognitive bias seen in a kind of two mirrors facing each other. These are eight Spanish riddles, and I'll just read a few of them. They're lovely translations. I'm a terrible guest. Nobody wants me, but you can't remember me unless you entertain me. Who am I? Hunger. Little plate of hazelnuts, on the shelf by day, spilt at night? The stars. I was quiet in my room when they came for me. I'm still a prisoner, but my house escaped through the windows. Who am I? A fish in a net. That's a brilliant one, I yes. think. That's really good. Uh, the, it's extraordinary. What I love about that one is that, the, and the, I think the reason it's a very, very good riddle, is that the terms of the riddle themselves are a little bit kind of twisty, turny and involuted. Yeah. Because the room is the ocean. Yeah. I was in quiet in my room when they came for me. I'm still a prisoner, but my house escaped the window. So the house itself is the water, which is not quite the same thing as the ocean. No. Because it, the windows then are the sort of bits of the net. Yeah. And there's a sort of Chinese box element to the terms. They fit yeah. inside, they're nested inside each other. And I think you always want that with a really good riddle. You know when... People say of puns, they have to exactly mirror each other. When, yeah. you, when you pun on something in a headline, it has to make sense as the kind of pun, but it also has to make sense, sense, sense. Yes. What's King Wenceslas's favourite dinner? I don't know. Pizza. Deep pan, crisp and even. Excellent. Very, very good. Perfect. <laughs> perfect, isn't it? <laughs> it's a perfect example. Because it makes sense both as the pun and it also, if you say it, it makes sense as the original line yeah. from the hymn. <laughs> and even excellent. And so this works really well in the same way. They're, they're sort of... Yeah. Riddles and puns have, have got a lot to do with each other. But I'm trying to think of it actually also in terms of the, the, the cognitive bias thing because you... What are you doing when, when you hear the riddle and you haven't yet got the answer? You're getting the first bit of the information and you know there's a solution, but you can't get at the solution because you're only thinking of the the riddle you've been given in terms of its literal sense, the first bit of meaning. You just somehow, you can't get your brain. It's exactly, it's straight back into that, the, the set effect happens at, in your interpretation. Yeah. So if you read something, I'm a terrible guest and no one wants me, 
you know, I can go off into a number of different ways I can imagine that as a scenario. Yeah, I booked this Airbnb room, yeah. you know, it was awful. You can't I remember left, me you know. unless you entertain me. And then, oh, you know, so your ability to, it's easy for me to solve it because it says hunger. I don't know if I would have got to that very quickly yeah. because I would have gone down something social. I think because it felt like a so you know the guests and, and and dislike and then all these cues so my set effect or my sense of familiarity would have taken me to something but would have taken me far from an actual visceral state which is what hunger is is it sometimes the case that people can get to the solutions quite quickly because they are practiced at not getting stuck to the on the semantics that's often the way, in my impression, people who are very good at cryptic cross exactly I, I look at cryptic cross and I'm like what. But different crossword writers have different styles, yeah. don't you? You have to not just get into the style, but the style for that person. Yeah. And then you are sort of on a... You're closer to cracking that delicious sensation of getting it right. In other words, you have to kind of really absorb the idea that things are not as they seem. You've got to come at the sentence or the problem laterally in order to solve it. And a lot... This is an interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of fairy tales about that, that the people who do well in fairy tales, the clever maid and so on, they always have a kind of... They often apply problem solving or puzzling techniques to they know that the world isn't exactly as it seems. So they can dodge the bucket of pitch or the whatever it is or the or the or the imp. I've looked at the set effect for so many years. It's been sort of part of what I've either been studying or teaching. And it was only thinking about it with a neuromantics hat on. I thought, but isn't this kind of like the tricking people with set effects is when you are writing a work of fiction, you're fooling with people's expectations yeah. because you're not going to start it and think, well, I know what's going to happen by the end of this book. You know, even at the simplest narrative, there would be some unexpected shifting. Yeah, what you want change. is, I think what you want, you know, in most good, ordinary, satisfying plots is, you know, you have a premise and then uh, that new information comes along, there's a subplot, something else happens. But the denouement has to satisfy both the original premise and the diversions that you've taken. Mm. You know, and it, so you, you're coming back to the beginning very often, but with a refreshed sense of what that you know word yeah. really means. And my problem is that I find that quite a boring way to write a book or even <laughs> to read one. I like ones that sort of just, I like books that sort of drop you off the edge of a cliff at the end. Your set uh, effects lying shattered yeah, around you. <laughs> but but it but it's still sort of it, it, it's still sort of exciting in some yeah. way, or or it stops a bit too short. But then you but then it. It works because you have to think about what hasn't yet happened. And so what Jonathan Miller called the afterlife of the book is somehow more available to you. One of the problems with closure is that if things are too wrapped up, mm. you, your imagination has nowhere to go and you tend to sort of wipe the slate. And yeah. How often do you hear people say, they say, oh, I saw this marvellous film the other night, I can't remember anything about it. In other words, it's turned into a little closed myth and it's just disappeared up its own behind. And the things that are a bit, really often more interesting are the things that preserve the problem you know they don't wrap it up yeah the door is open to it still being something else and that's a bit more difficult to do a good example in really popular fiction is actually i do think it's a very good book although it's a you know it was a it was a big thriller in the in the, in the 70s but rosemary's baby mm. and it's preserved in the in the in the film too what's clever about it is that you don't quite know whether Rosemary has in fact given birth to the devil's child or whether she simply had a very, very difficult pregnancy and it's all yeah. uh, a kind of imagined thing. Yeah. The door is left open to both. And I think that's really, really important in satisfying resolutions that you don't 
wrap everything up. I had the strangest experience after I read Murmur, which is that wherever I'd been reading it, if I tried to read anything else, I had this enormous after effect. It just, yeah, because of the way that you've written it being, it's open. You have to sort of take a bit more of a zoom out on the narrative than you would often do with something that's extremely yeah. literal. And if you then take that across to reading the next thing, it could be a student's paper or it could be a, an article. It just really, it was very odd. It was as if I'd been asleep and woken up and I was trying to read something immediately. I couldn't make sense of something that was smaller somehow. Well, it's opening, It's sort of slightly open in two ways, because on the one hand, we all know that Alan Turing committed suicide, but it, on, on the other hand, in Murmur, it's not absolutely clear that his yeah. avatar has. Yeah. I mean, we are we are led to suppose pretty firmly that, that he has, but he doesn't seem particularly suicidal, and he's writing sort of quite coherently. It gives you a, a resonance, a something of a sense of the of the poem or the story carrying on that you then carry over mm. into what else the other things you're reading. Epic tends to do that. You know, the the, the homecoming leads you to think about what you know the afterlife of the hero might be, or even at the end of Paradise Lost. One of the interesting and slightly heretical things about it. Milton, Milton, of course, a Republican author, but is that when Adam and Eve, lit by the fiery brand of the of the angel, leave Eden, and he says, you know, step by step they took their solitary way, but they're together. They leave Eden, but they're together, and you are in absolutely no doubt at the human level. It's a very very tender story. You are in absolutely no doubt about their forgiveness of each other. If anything, they are more more obviously a couple and the mother and father of mankind at this point mm. than they are at any other point in the book where they have a sort of symbolic religious function. And so you are... Then what does that do to your sense of what the Genesis story is? It's suddenly opening out into history. Mm. And you could say that the whole of Paradise Lost is anyway an allegory of, you know, the Civil War and, you know... Uh, and Satan is Charles I and so on. Or, or Satan isn't Charles I, he's Cromwell. Yeah. But it's a fantastic view, right in the middle of the 17th century, at the end of absolutist rule, of the great symbolic parents of mankind survive coming through slaughter, through a fundamental crisis, and sort of becoming representatives, kind of becoming parliamentarians. For mankind, it mm. is really, really, really interesting, and I don't think it's often observed that that's what the end of the poem is doing. So there we are, the riddles by Dean Oaks, and I thought I'd just no, they're lovely. One more thing, well, just a lovely poem called "Oh, the Long Marriage." Oh, it's this is a beautiful, beautiful poem. The Long Marriage. I love my life, she says, but really, I would like to be elsewhere. I love the pull of the dog's leash and the air between us when we sleep. I'm amazed how decisions are made in dreams with an absent mind and last forever. I just like elsewhere better. I would take you with me if I could. It is snowing, as always, in that window. And the old dog, grey-muzzled, listens with his head on his paws, breathing hard in sleep. It's beautiful. It's marvellous, isn't it? It's a poem about cognitive bias. You can both want to be and you are in the marriage. Yeah. And yet the lure of elsewhere is equally constant. Your imaginative life is a yeah. constant, is, is probably even more constant in some ways than your partner. 
because you can't really act. You know, your partner is always a different person. Your fantasy he, is you. Your yeah. fantasy is you. Yeah. He's very, he's very good at that. They're the beautiful, beautiful fantasy. Yeah. a night in Brooklyn and I'm not going to read the whole thing but there's this lovely description oh, read it, about just read it. There's, okay there's a bit about sex and there's a bit about sleep and there's a bit about waking and it describes exactly that night smooth thing we were talking about a night in Brooklyn we undid a button turned out the light and in that narrow bed we built the great city water towers cisterns hot asphalt roofs parks septic tanks arterial roads canarsie the intricate channels, the sea coast, underwater mountains, bluffs, islands, the next continent, using only the palms of our hands and the tips of our tongues. Next we made darkness itself. By then it was time for daybreak and we closed our eyes until the sun rose and we had to take it all to pieces, for there could only be one Brooklyn. And you sometimes read poems and you think, well, you think, first of all, I wish I'd written that. And then you think... That's a really good example of something that's got a, a kind of riddling quality to it that you want in a poem. You want it not to be completely yeah. obvious. Otherwise, why would it? Why would it not just be prose? Yeah. You want something that estranges you mm. from the subject matter. Uh, but it also has a trajectory. And as I said, you go from this lovely idea of creating something. When when you make love, you're also making the city. You're remaking your surroundings. And it describes mm. very well that sense of you that you have when you're, you know, very intimate with someone that actually something extraordinary is happening. Yes, yeah, something that, something very big. Something, something very, very big yeah. is you know really is you're, you're remaking the world or yeah. everything is changed. Yeah, you know, for you because of this relationship. And then there's a sort of blank, which is sleep and oblivion. Yeah. And then there is waking, which is. It could easily be disillusionment, but he, what I like about his writing is it's not disillusionment. It's a different kind of illusion, mm. which is the real world that is about sort of taking things apart, taking fantasies apart so that you see how things really are. Mm. And then presumably you go back to the dreaming again. It's a really nice. It's a lovely idea. It's beautiful. It's um, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I'd never read these before. But before we say goodbye... Can I say that if you've enjoyed anything of what you've heard today, do feel free to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your We're sort podcasts. of all over the shop, we actually. I think you can subscribe on a number of platforms. But it really helps us in our daily battle with the algorithm if you did subscribe to us. And please also feel free to rate and review us, unless you hate this, in which case, you know, don't worry too much. Other podcasts <laughs> are available. <laughs> And we'd like to thank you very much for the comments and the ratings that you've already given us. It's really lovely to read. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.